Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. In this episode, I'm speaking with Alex Hone, the managing partner of Realside Capital. We're talking to him about the Capital Flagship Fund, as well as their other investments in largely assets to do with the property industry. Alex talks to us about the private debt fund that has a target return of 12% per annum that they've exceeded to date. And he talks to us about some of the nuances and trends in the private debt market. Please remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of this podcast. And keep in mind that this podcast isn't, nor is it designed to be, specific or general financial advice. People are encouraged to read the offer documents, information memorandums, or PDSs of any investments that are discussed and to seek their own advice. Please keep your feedback coming. You can get me at david.clark at codacapital.com. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Alex, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Lovely to be here. Perhaps you could, as we like to do on the podcast, is kick away with you giving us a bit of insight into who we're talking to. Sure. Uh, name's Alex Hone. I've been in the uh, finance industry for about 20 plus years and um, worked in Australia, a variety of groups. Uh, probably the best known of those was Magellan. I had, had the joy of helping set up the infrastructure business there, uh, but also some time in London. Um, and that's probably not dissimilar to my background. Had it had, a, had an upbringing where I had a, uh, a variety of different countries and places that we uh, spent time. was born in the Middle East, American mother, uh, Aussie father. Uh, dad was an engineer. First job in Australia was uh, a construction camp uh, out of Inverell, so uh, my father's was. So we started the, the family farm in northern New South Wales and so had a variety of different uh, influences sort of growing up that uh, have, have stuck with me. Wow. And, and how, if any of those influences, do you think shape the way you think about things today? I think, uh, and, and you know, included in there, I, I, I managed to convince the university to let me do third year uh, of, of my studies in, in France. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm fluent in French, but uh, I, you know, the, the, the multiplicity, I think, of, of people you meet, you know, cultures you get exposed to from what is a very young, young age, um, I, I think is, you know, was quite refreshing. Uh, uh, I, I delight in my time in the bush. Um, you, you know, there's a, there's a sincerity and genu- you know genuineness um, uh, to, to people in the Australian outback, and and I think it, it really just gives you a different perspective on a whole range of things. Uh, and and also, you know, I've a very you know, by nature I have a, a strong natural curiosity as to how the world works, and um, uh, it's probably amplified that over the years just by having different exposures to different things. Terrific. Okay, well, tell us about your job now and tell us about RealSide. So, so RealSide's a, uh, a specialist private markets business. There's two parts to the business. There's a commercial property funds management arm and a, a private debt arm. Um, you know, we're quite small. There's about 15 of us in total. Uh, we uh, have been working together for a team in, as, as a team in um, uh, for about the last decade or so. The team's grown, but... Uh, we, we came out of a, a larger multi-asset business that uh, Quadrant Private Equity bought, and as part of that, um, we, we've, we've moved the team out into a separate new business um, uh, that focuses exclusively on, on those two things, commercial property and private debt, and uh, absolutely loving it. That's been going for about two and a half years now. We have about 500 mil under management uh, and grown quite strongly, and uh, really strong philosophy around the, the team and the business, which is... Uh, we we only want to make investments that we're keen to put our own capital into. Um, you, you know, alignment between ourselves and our clients is is very very 
um, key. We're not interested in growth for growth's sake. Uh, and so when people ask me what do they think the business will look like in one, two, three years' time, it's really a function of saying, well, you tell me the opportunities that get presented and the, the, the market environment that they'll be in, and I'll, and I'll be able to answer that. But other than that, we, we just follow our nose with a strong framework around the sorts of investment problems we like solving and uh, being able to, as I say, you know, invest alongside our clients in, in things that we think are highly interesting and compelling. And that 500 million under management, is that on the commercial real real estate side or is that on the private debt side? So that's broadly, I'd say it's almost evenly split. Okay. Um, so uh, uh, it, there's probably marginally a small amount more in, in, in the commercial property side at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, we just completed a, a really interesting uh, little industrial development uh, fundraise uh, at the end of last year. Um, uh, which nudged that slightly ahead, but we have about you know, a little over 200 mil on the private debt side. Uh, and, and the differences or the distinguishes it with, with, with the two is obviously in the private debt, it's that capital recycles um, mm -hmm. uh, back to you, so you, you need less capital ultimately to exploit the opportunities that we're interested in. Uh, whereas on the property side, they're obviously much longer lasting you, you know, investments. So by definition, we'd expect that as a, as a business to, to grow in aggregate over time. So before we dive into the private debt side, which we're here to focus on, I'm interested in your views on the commercial market and industrial market. I know I had a client at the end of last year sell a, a significant industrial property to Stockland and uh, the thinking around that was, you know, the sort of, you know, if you can sell a property like that at a 4% yield, it seems very appealing when they're required on sort of 10 to 12% yield. Um, just interested in your views of where values sort in that market if you've got interest rates moving up and uh, you know that, that 4% seems to be very tight for industrial. Yeah. Uh, do you share those views or yeah, how a, do you see things? I'm a seller every day of the week and twice on Sunday. I think um, uh, you know the, the, the notion that people are pricing things with negative real rates into perpetuity just seems ridiculous to me. Um, uh, we can talk about inflation a little bit later, but, but, but I think um, you know the view that nominal bonds are going to be sitting around their current level uh, or rolling back two months, you know, and the expectation they were going to be sitting at those levels for extended period of time made no sense to us. But it's a, it's a perfect example of how we as a business break down problems. So if I roll, again, just in commercial property, if I roll back over the, the, the last couple of years, if you'd said to me at the start of uh, 2020 that we were going to buy $150 million of commercial property assets, um, I thought, there's nothing really that attractive about uh, um, uh, office property at that stage. It looked very, very tight. Uh, but COVID threw off an array of incredibly attractive opportunities, um, fully leased, you know, uh, robust assets, great, you know, car park to um, uh, office ratios. And the point is, is they were priced in such a manner that we thought that the market's actually getting this wrong. They're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, industrial is another perfect example of that. We're completely agree. Uh, we, we really like the sector, but the valuations in our mind are just ridiculous. So what we've done in that market segment is actually approach it from a, how can we reconstruct this? Uh, we've found certain segments of the market where land prices have, have barely moved um, relative to those valuations. Uh, and basically option those lands up, uh, the, sorry, option that land up, be able to find long-term you know, national tenants. Um, uh, and then basically enter it from a development standpoint. Now, the, the, the development risk on a construction, uh, sorry, on an industrial asset is very, very small. If you've got the, the land and if you've got the tenant, um, building a shed uh, and, and you know, hard stand is, is relatively straightforward. Um, 
And so we partnered with a group uh, who, who specializes in that. But ultimately that's then uh, on a five year hold gonna be throwing off mid-teens returns, um, majority of which is cash um, post that initial build phase. So you're building in your margin of safety by virtue of the fact you're not buying you know, an existing shed with an existing tenant, uh, but still getting good exposure to the building. So it's philosophically just how we'll look at an investment thesis and say that's attractive, but how can we get access to it in a, in a, you know, uh, a more simplistic or appropriate manner? So tell us about the capital flagship fund. So on the, on the capital side of the business or the private debt side of the business, a very similar thematic, and that is how can we uh, use our capital or client capital to really allow you know, asset owners or businesses um, solve a problem ultimately as a, as a funder, be it on the equity side or the debt side, that, as a capital provider, that's what you're doing. Uh, and um, what we're, you know, one of the questions people ask is, well, there's a lot of non-bank lenders out there now. Um, how do you guys differ? Seems like a new one every week. It, it does. And uh, I'm you know, learning more and more about the, the, the sheer volume and spectrum of, of, of people out there um, performing this as, as every day goes on. But um, in essence, there aren't as many players as it would appear. And we, um, you know, how we differentiate ourselves there is, is really uh, what we call um, uh, finding opportunistic investments. So uh, counterparties, be it asset owners or, or, or companies, um, with a very, very strong quality bias. Uh, so we, we want to think about our counterparties in a quality lens like you would as if you were owning equity in them. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, they have a structural issue that they need to solve, you know, be it timing of cash that, they, that they, they need to solve, there's a complexity to their, their business, or there's an ability to structure something a little outside the box, all of which mean that a standard traditional bank lender or non-bank lender um, won't be able to solve their problem for them. Uh, and their other option then is to go and raise equity, mm -hmm. which typically you're in those circumstances- You're cheap versus equity. That's exactly the way to think about it. So uh, typically our borrowers absolutely love us because we are stopping them from raising equity at very expensive prices, mm -hmm. uh, albeit they're paying a, a premium, a very material premium to what they would in a, in a traditional bank or non-bank lending. So market. they're typically paying you what sort of rate? So on those opportunistic deals, uh, we're typically getting paid uh, north of 15%. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, but it can vary. You, you know, we, we, uh, it's really margin relative to what we think the intrinsic value should be. So we, we did a, a deal about six months ago um, to a large scale uh, industrial player. Um, they have about they had $300 million of cash on the balance sheet. Uh, and they were transacting a, 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 a key industrial asset for themselves. They needed $37 million. Uh, a, another lender had completely stuffed them around. Uh, that was an 11% IRR for, for, for us. Um, that, that should have been priced at six to seven. So it's still opportunistic because we turned it around for them in, in a four week period. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a range of complexity around that that, that most l lenders wouldn't be able to, to um, Managing that circumstance. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hearing in my ears here, you know, one specific client of mine who would say to me, David, good heavens, 15%, the people they're lending this money to, uh, you know, mu mustn't be much chop if, if, if they have to pay 15%. Tell us a little bit about why that ar arises and why that situation comes about and why aren't the banks lending it? Yeah, 100%. So I made the comment about quality Mm -hmm. the characteristics like equity, but then we want to ensure that we have the, the security that you would expect from a senior lender, um, that, and we don't compromise on that security package. And that, that can include uh, 
you, you know, the, the, the first mortgage over all assets, personal guarantees, cross-collateralization, um, pretty much every lever that we can pull to actually gain security. Uh, but, but the question under that is, which we asked is, why would someone pay for that? Um, so they're really, they fall into three buckets. One is speed of execution. So uh, often um, a borrower has been stuffed around. They've found themselves in a circumstance where another lender, uh, another source of capital has suddenly disappeared at the last minute. Um, and that was the example of that industrial group uh, that, that, that I gave earlier. Uh, there's a complexity to it that just makes it too hard. Standard bank lenders and non-bank lenders, they're not there to, to solve complex problems. Mm-hmm. You know, they run a, a machine that is about efficiency and, and being able to tick checks and balances. So things can very easily just get put in the too hard basket. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's often that, that, that app saying you don't get paid more for solving harder problems. Um, whereas in our instance, we want to get paid more for, for solving harder problems. Mm-hmm. And the third, uh, the third example is just innovation around structuring. You, you know, there's often other assets in the security pool that can be wrapped in. That takes time, energy, you know, commercial negotiation, legal structuring. And again, s- standard bank or non-bank lenders aren't set up to do those things. And think about it economically. If a, if a borrower is borrowing $40 million for us and uh, they're paying an extra 5% on that, that's simplistically $2 million a year. What that's allowing them to do might be generating 10 to $15 million a year. So mm-hmm. if their option was dilutive equity or yes. not doing it, it's an economically rational thing for them to be doing. And our biggest issue is getting repaid early. You know, we are, we are capital for... Uh, Where they a, can't do a, it with a with period of time. ANZ or the bank. C- yeah. Correct. And, you know, 99 times out of 100, we're getting refinanced out once they're through a circumstance by a mainstream bank at three, four percent, um, and it's provided them a structural solution, and and avoided them from having to raise expensive equity. And is everything secured against property? We love asset backing. Um, so for us, we go into these circumstances, and I'm sure at some point you'll ask me a, a question on you know economic outlook. Yeah. We go into these every deal, assuming the world's going to go to hell in the handbasket. Yep. Um, uh, because when the world as and when it does go to hell in the handbasket, you're in a much better position to say, yes. well, great, we've already got a clear plan as to how we can exit this. Um, so we love asset-backed security, things that we can readily and easily um, liquidate should we, should we need. Um, there are certain, certain circumstances where we will uh, have a cash flow lend, but in those instances, we want to be able to see long-term contracts. We basically want to be able to see tangible, available things. So, so if, if I was to think about this as a portfolio of yep. loans? How many loans are there? At the moment, there's 16. So that's 16. another point where we're very hands-on. Uh, it, it's, yep. it's, you know, the portfolios it builds out, it's about 18 months in, uh, will be about 20, 25 loans. And average size of loan? Uh, well, that's growing as the portfolio grows. Yep. So at the but moment... Ballpark between what and what? Uh, so, yeah. so between 10 and 30 mil. Okay. And would there be an average loan-to-value ratio in place for that portfolio? It's sitting about 60%. And, and senior secured, or where do you sit on the capital stack? So the majority of that's senior secured. We do allow ourselves a bit of mezzanine in there. So at the moment, uh, on a look-through basis, that's about 85% senior secured and about 15% mez. Okay, rightio. And uh, diversification, you know, the, the one yeah. thing I get told, I don't know, is Chris Cuff uh, is on your board, and he was in that seat recording here a time back. 
Um, and he said, you know, the one thing is your friend uh, in, in debt is diversification. Yeah. So how do you diversify that portfolio? So, and, and that's where we get to the number of 2025 20, individual investments. What's the minimum amount of, of uh, investments we want in the portfolio? Um, mm -hmm. We've never lost money on a single deal mm -hmm. uh, over the last decade, uh, and we want that to remain the case. Um, uh, it's, it's just the, the philosophical approach to we are risk averse, despite us earning excess, you know, excess returns for the risk we're taking. But within that, uh, we then think about each individual loan we are comfortable with, but when we combine them together, we don't want to, you know, to, to use a, a couple of technical terms, we don't want to suddenly start having systemic risk apostrophe portfolio. We want to have as much idiosyncratic risk yep. in the portfolio as possible. So we think about limits on geographies, counterparties, sectors, um, you know, economic factors that might drive through. So we at the moment are thinking a lot about the consumer and what consumer exposure do we have in the, in the portfolio? How will that manifest itself in different ways as a factor, you, you know, be it through residential housing, whether it be through receivables on certain inventories, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so we want to constantly be looking at it so that no matter what the economic shock may be down the track, mm -hmm. um, it, be it COVID, be it, you know, geopolitical, be it financial system, you know, regulatory, et cetera, that that, that portfolio diversity enhances that, that credit quality again. Mm -hmm. And the fund's got an objective to pay out 12% per annum return. How's it gone to that? Yeah, so we're running uh, since inception about uh, 13, 14% annualised. And, and is that income paid quarterly or half yearly? So or that yeah? that is uh, been annual as the fund's been building, but that's about yes. to move to quarterly. Okay, terrific. And, and are there any, can you maybe describe, you know, on your wish list today, just give us a flavour and the listeners of where and how you see things. What type of deal would come to you today and you'd say very quickly, no, that's not for us? And what sort of deal could you describe that you'd say, yes, I'd love to do a deal that looks and feels like that? Yeah. Oh, I, the, the no's are quite easy and, and yeah. I could talk probably ad nauseum about that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, given we'd probably say no to 99% of things that, that come through the door and that could be uh, counterparty quality. It could be provisions around what, what security we're going to get. It could be... Um, it's in a sector that um, you know falls outside the ESG provisions that that we want to um, maintain in the fund. Um, th th there's a huge variety of things there. It's it's more so what what do we like, um, and and that's where I say the quality filter and overlay is absolutely key in terms of asset quality, location. Um, you know we avoid regional areas where liquidity can disappear during downturns. Mm -hmm. um, we we want to see strong, robust operating partners um, that understand uh, what their business is doing. We want to understand why they need the capital uh, and, and um, that, that is a valid reason that's going to grow and you know, allow that asset or that, that company to increase their, their intrinsic value. And we want to have a very clear understanding of exit. Um, so we, we see that we're there for a good time, not a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, typically that's you know, anywhere between one to three years. And um, you know, having that clarity about how we are going to be paid back, capital and coupon, um, uh, is absolutely critical for us. And again, because one of the beauties of having a more concentrated portfolio really means that we are far more hands-on with our counterparties. You, you know, we're meeting with them regularly. Uh, one of the beauties of a capital allocator is you have the ability to step back and, and, and look across the horizon as to what you see is happening. And often, um, 
uh, you know, we've, we've very rarely had to step in uh, because we're having that conversation very early. If we see there again speed bumps coming up and ahead, uh, we want to have that conversation earlier with the borrower. You know, we have very um, uh, strong default clauses in there. Uh, the borrowers don't want us to be there when they go into default. Uh, and therefore they are incentivized early to go and find other capital sources, bring more equity in, et cetera, et cetera, well and truly before we have an issue. And they really appreciate that as well, because ultimately if you do have that quality counterparty, they're wanting to build sustainable assets or, 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 or companies and, and therefore they want to rectify things on the way through rather than waiting till the 11th hour. It seems to me that the, the area you're in, this private debt area, the better you are, the more problems you create for yourself in some ways that the better the quality of lend, the quicker they're going to get paid out by a bank at three, four or five percent to take you out. And then you've got all this cash coming back to you that you have to redeploy or distribute out or otherwise. How are you managing that cash sort of issue? Um, and, and I think the fund's one that you only open it up once you have deals on there. It's not you're taking applications all the time. Correct. Can you just talk a little bit about that? No, it's spot on. And it's one of the, uh, you know, I often say that that for an illiquid investment, this is one of the, the best people can make by virtue of the liquidity characteristics. Yes, you know, and it's a three-year lockup for people coming in, right? Cor correct. Currently, it's a three-year lockup. Um, again, we're doing some work around, uh, uh, because as the portfolio matures and the, the, the client base matures, well then you have this constant amount of cash being paid back. So yes. there's actually, it's an illiquid asset class, but you have underlying cash flow characteristics, especially when you, you, you know, if you assume on a quarterly basis you're, you're earning 3% of income mm -hmm. and you've got you know evenly distributed loans over two years, well then by definition you've got um, three loans or, and, and again, if they're evenly distributed, another 15% of the portfolio that's become liquid. So on a quarterly basis you've got close to 20% of the portfolio every quarter that's available for reallocation or, or mm -hmm. redemption. Um, but within that, as you, as you highlight, uh, you know, these things operate best in a fund so that you can move quickly, uh, but it does create some of those characteristics of, of, of how you manage cash flows. So how we've dealt with that is only drawing capital in, as you say, when we need capital. Uh, we, we've got a very clear view on, on capacity. You know, we'll soft close this uh, targeting around 300 mil. We, we have a large amount of personal capital in this fund, so we don't want to dilute returns. We, we, we you know, it's, it's um, a, achieving, you know, a double digit total return with very low volatility, we think is highly, highly attractive uh, for, for all investors. Um, but that, um, you, you know, what you describe is one of the, the nuances of, of, and difficulties of, of managing a, you know, a, a closed end private, private debt portfolio. Now, you flagged earlier on you wanted to talk about the economic outlook. I, didn't, well, I, I, I think you wanted to, but you're, yeah. you're expecting, uh, uh, but I'm going to drag you into it anyway. <laughs> yeah. Look, it's, it's, I, I, think, um, I think where we currently sit uh, is, is a fascinating point of the global economy. Uh, we, you know, uh, 2009 was, what, uh, 13 years ago? Mm -hmm. uh, so you've got a large number of market participants who probably never lived through anything other than a uh, deflationary environment. Um, and, you know, we, we had been seeing in the portfolio for over a year now these very strong inflationary forces coming, you know, in discussion with, with our counterparties and the borrowers. So for Powell to come out in January and, and to really change the tune around um, from a central banking standpoint, uh, that, that they were going to be proactive um, in raising rates and dealing with that, uh, wasn't a surprise to us. 
Uh, and really, the, the, the issue you have today is um, the inflation pressures in the economy are both supply-driven and demand-driven. Okay? Uh, central bankers know in their wheelhouse how to deal with demand-driven activities, but supply-driven is, 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 a, is a completely different kettle of fish. Uh, and so you've got that multiplicity overlaid with what has become an increasingly complex geopolitical environment um, that is also you know, augmenting not just COVID impacting supply issues, but, but also now you have geopolitical pressures, particularly during out of um, Russia and Ukraine, uh, driving some of those supply issues as well. So if you think about an economy as a river, you know, mm -hmm. a fast flowing river, um, the way I would describe the economic environment we're going into is, is you have two very fast flowing rivers actually about to collide. Uh, and the forecasting of how that's actually going to play out is, is, is very, very you know, difficult to see at this stage, other than um, I think central banks will increasingly want to and need to withdraw the you know, $35 trillion of, of monetary stimulus that they poured, poured into the system. Mm. Um, uh, and, and ultimately, that's going you know, to mean there's a lot of um, assets which have been propped up by that that will struggle. But to give you an example, within our own portfolio, uh, discussion that we had with a with a counterparty um, just this week is raw materials for um, yep. construction up 30 40 percent correct and so valuations at the moment which are being justified from the buy side by virtue of this cheap money yes uh, are all, all of a sudden justified by the cost of replacement correct and and ultimately the the, the developers have been earning the same margins those that have been timing it well are not getting getting caught uh, because you know the, 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 they've got the, the gross revenue increasing, but they've also offset that with the um, with the supply increase. But but those costs will ameliorate, uh, and so it's it's impossible to see that the marginal developer will then suddenly suddenly start earning 30, 40 percent margins. Mm -hmm. There's only one place for that to go, and that's actually prices to fall, uh, uh, because that that cost input you know is going to come back. There's no reason why, and you're already starting to see that in lumber prices. Lumber was materially limited in in supply, you know, largely because of Canada, US, etc., and as well as China getting massively hit from COVID supply. So mm -hmm. lumber prices gone through the roof. The supply is now coming back on, but the prices are yet to fall. But by definition, it will. You, you know, it's still a commodity, and and, and supply and demand um, will dictate that those lumber prices relate back. So if the if the widget, being the house, suddenly costs. 10-15% less than it did a year ago, uh, it's hard to see that that developers will be pocketing all that without actually prices falling back. And and and, and so you have that natural um, supply-driven force into the market versus, and, and that's why the question then on consumers saying, well, actually, if rates are going up at that same time, how does that look from a demand standpoint? Alex, uh, it's been very helpful and very insightful. And uh, I guess I'll leave you, leave you the last question. Um, what should I have asked that I haven't asked? Uh, I think um, alignment's a, a key thing for us. Uh, I've made that point already. Um, but it's just, for us, we, we only want to take risk as and when um, we think we're going to be fairly rewarded for it. And we have a, a very clear view as to why we have capital certainty there. Um, drawing it back onto the economic uh, uh, environment, we, we have a lot of questions about what's going on forward, going forward, and, and therefore we're being very, very cautious at the moment. Um, uh, we're seeing you know, an array of opportunities, but we, we want to be playing those on the back foot uh, because we think that the you know, 
how the next 12 months plays out is going to be a fascinating one for, for markets and therefore, you know, participants like us who are, you know, the fiduciaries of client capital, um, you know, really should be very cautious as to how they conduct themselves. Terrific. Thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Love your time. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.